0: Epiphany season, and this time has been all about reflecting upon the revealing of Jesus Christ as the Messiah of the world. The gospel scene for this Sunday is a fitting way to end Epiphany, as we will see how it both sums up this time of the church year and also offers us a way to look forward, offers us a way to prepare ourselves for the great penitential season of Lent, which begins this upcoming Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. Our Gospel lesson this morning comes from the Gospel According to Mark. And something that Mark does all throughout his Gospel, and you can kind of see it in the way that he writes, and that is that as he presents the life of Christ, he wants the reader to make a decision about Jesus. At the end of his Gospel, he wants you to have either have accepted him as the Son of God or not, or to believe or to deny him as the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament Scriptures. And these opportunities present themselves whenever Jesus is revealing himself. To the world through his works, his word, his teaching, his healing, his obedience, and his calling of the disciples. Today we can place ourselves in the sandals of three individual disciples, Peter, James, and John, who have been with Jesus from the beginning. The scene of the Transfiguration is the perfect bookend to this theme of Christ revealing himself. Our Epiphany season begins and ends with two moments that look almost identical. If you remember, we began the first Sunday of Epiphany with the baptism of our Lord. In that reading, we saw that John was baptizing Jesus in the River Jordan, and the clouds of the heavens were torn over, the Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and the voice of the Father proclaimed from the clouds, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Then this all took place at the very start of Jesus' ministry, and after this, he was driven out into the wilderness to do battle with the devil Does this sound familiar? Well, I hope it does, because this morning, Jesus' transfiguration with the disciples comes at the tail end of his ministry. It lands right in the middle of Mark's gospel account, and it kind of acts as a pivoting moment in the story. The focus is now shifting. It's going from the broad ministry of Jesus throughout the three years, and now towards its culmination. And we see... With this revelation of his glory that we come to the end of Jesus' tour of teaching, preaching, and healing. And Mark leads us into Act 2 of the play, where the final battle with the devil will take place not in the wilderness, but on the cross. The resemblance to Jesus' baptism is also no mere coincidence. It's meant to affirm and to show us how Jesus is truly who the Father says that he was at his baptism, who his Father truly affirms that he is here on the top of the mountain. And it tells us what our response to this truth ought to be. It is to to and through the disciples that the transfiguration is meant to call us to follow Jesus, who is the true Messiah, no matter what lies ahead of us in life. So as we seek to see the transfiguration through the eyes of the disciples, we should probably ask ourselves, okay, what's going through their head? What state are the disciples in as they're walking with Jesus? As they go up the high mountain, What's on their mind? If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Mark chapter 8. Right before the transfiguration, we can see exactly where they're at. At the end of chapter 8, we are met with something like a roller coaster of emotions that the disciples are being put through. They are put into a state of confusion and uncertainty. As Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Caesarea Philippi, he turns to them and he asks them, Who do people say that I am? And they answer uh, several things. You know, many people say that you're a prophet of some kind. Other people say that maybe you're John the Baptist or maybe you're Elijah back from the dead. And this is not wholly unexpected because for the Jewish people, recognizing their Messiah was not an easy task. They had waited for so long that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't really look like the Messiah that they thought they would get. But it is Peter who makes the profound claim, the correct claim, that Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Christ, God's anointed one. How great must it have felt when Jesus turned to him and affirmed to him that he was right, that what he said is true. But this joy, unfortunately for Peter and for the rest of the disciples, is short-lived. As Jesus immediately begins to tell them in this same passage that this Messiah standing before them has to suffer this Messiah standing before them must die. Even the incredible claim of his resurrection goes over the head of Peter, and it can't keep him calm because his first reaction is to blurt out and rebuke Jesus. How could you say such a thing? If you're the Messiah, how could you die? This is probably not the wise and teacherly disagreement between peers. This isn't some spirited debate. Peter's confused. Peter's distraught at the thought of Jesus' even potential death. How could the Messiah die if the Messiah is supposed to be victorious, if he's supposed to be the King of Kings, if he's supposed to usher in the powerful reign of God? And it's amidst this confusion and discouragement in their hearts that the disciples are climbing up this tall mountain to see what Jesus has for them at the top. But luckily for them, and for the rest of the people of God, At the top of tall mountains is one of the best places to be if you're distraught. If you're downcast, as we read in our Old Testament passage this morning, the prophet Elijah flees to Mount Sinai after receiving a death threat from Jezebel. Scared for his life, he runs up the mountain and hides. And when he gets to the top, God meets him there. And God asks him, why have you come to such a place? Elijah wastes no time and he begins pouring his heart out to God, all his frustrations of being a prophet for Israel. No one listens to me, everyone wants to kill me. This is too much, I cannot bear it anymore. After all, being a prophet is no easy job. When no one listens to you and everyone wants to kill you, it's not surprising that maybe you don't love your job so much. But God then reassures Elijah, a strong wind comes by, an an earthquake. rumbles through, a great fire passes by his face, but the Lord was not in any of these. Elijah has seen God's power in nature before. Just a couple chapters earlier, he saw God call fire down to prove the Baals wrong, but that's not where the comfort is. Rather, it's in the small, still word, something almost like an undetectable whisper that Elijah is consoled by the comforting words of God. He's renewed in his resolve to serve the Lord because of what the Lord says to him. The incredible display of God's power is not the healing balm that the prophet needed to renew his spirits. It's rather the comforting word of a loving father. And Elijah's not alone in having a mountaintop experience of comfort in the Bible. It happens kind of a lot. In Genesis, we remember how Abraham was comforted on Mount Moriah. He was distressed over the command from God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And so the Lord delivers a ram, and reaffirms his promise that Abraham's children will be as innumerable as the stars, and all the earth will be blessed through them, because Abraham had faith. Likewise, we can look at Moses, when Moses ascends Mount Sinai, and he's discouraged at the prospect of leading this, this disobedient Israel to the promised land without the presence of God to go before them and God and so he intercedes for his people and he says to God, you know, God, we need you. You you have to come with us. We cannot go if you are not with us. And so God allows his glory to pass by Moses. But then he reassures him and he says, my presence will go with you and I shall give you rest. Now in all these events, it's not the wind and the fire, it's not the ram in the thicket, it's not even the glimpse of the glory of the Lord that comforts his servants. It's the word of the Father who loves them that is their source of peace. That is what eases their troubled hearts. So as we return to the Gospel of Mark this morning, we can be certain that two things are going to happen when the disciples and Jesus reach the top of this mountain. One, God is going to do something pretty amazing. And two, it's his words that the disciples and us today should pay attention to. Now Mark's Gospel is the shortest Gospel in the New Testament. But even in what he does record, usually Mark doesn't skimp on the details, usually gives us a pretty clear picture of what's going on. But as we read here in chapter 9, it almost seems like Mark is at a loss for words to describe just what happened on the mountaintop. He tells us in verse 2 that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there also appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Mark kind of offers us something of a police sketch of this magnificent event, just enough to maybe recognize it, but not enough to really know what's going on. He doesn't describe much of the actual transfiguration of what really changes in Jesus' appearance. Even as he mentions the radiancy of Jesus' clothes, it's almost like, He's grasping at words. He's trying to find the right analogy to explain just what they saw. It's like he's saying, guys, you don't understand. His clothes were like really, really, really white, whiter than white. You just had to be there. You just had to see it. And Mark doesn't even tell us anything about the conversation that happens between Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Now, luckily, Luke, in his gospel, sheds some light on the subject. And there, he tells us that Jesus was speaking with them about his departure. And literally, the word used there for departure is the word for exodus. They were talking to Jesus about his exodus in Jerusalem, talking about his atoning death and resurrection. But again, what follows this glorious display of God is God's comforting word. And here we see, like at Jesus' baptism, the Father's presence appears in the clouds, And we hear his voice saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then, just as quickly as the transfiguration began, it's over. Elijah and Moses are gone, God's voice is no longer in the clouds, and it's Jesus and the disciples. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this all for, and what does this mean? What does it mean for Jesus to show Peter, James, and John such a display of his glory? What is the importance of God the Father's words here in this moment? The mountaintop encounter is meant to be a moment of reassurance to and for the disciples. Everything in the narrative is pointed at them. Jesus was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appear to them. If we look back at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, God is speaking directly to Jesus when he says, "'You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased.'" But now, here in the Transfiguration, the audience is not Jesus, the audience is the disciples, and God is speaking to them, saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Jesus, by displaying his divine nature to the disciples, is declaring undeniably that he is who God the Father said he is at his baptism, that he is truly the sent one of Yahweh, he is Israel's Messiah. The forewarning of Jesus' death, which has clouded the minds and dampened the hearts of the disciples, is now met with a bright foretaste of his resurrection. It gives them a glimpse at what is yet to come in the salvation story, both for Jesus and both for us. Peter, James, and John will eventually be the leaders of Jesus' church in the book of Acts. And so Jesus here shows them just a token of his glory to bolster their faith. And with that faith, the Father instructs them in the way to go, mainly to listen to Jesus. Now, Mark is not the only one who's at a loss for words here in this story. As we look at Peter, we witness, as he witnesses this revelation of Jesus's divinity, he responds in what can only be described as an utterly human fashion. In verse 5, we see that Peter approaches Jesus and he says, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He wants to go camping. (laughs) For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And naturally, who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be terrified in such a moment? But just imagine for yourselves, close your eyes if you have to, that you are standing where Peter stood. If you had Moses, Elijah, and Jesus standing before you having a conversation, wouldn't you want that conversation to last forever? Imagine the wisdom. Imagine the encouragement that you could gain from just 10 minutes of listening in, being a fly on the wall, or on the rock in this case. Peter's instinctual reaction is understandable. He wants to capture this moment forever. He wants to prolong it for as long as he can, and I don't blame him. He offers to set up tents for the three figures as a way of memorializing what's happening. After all, it's the hospitable host who treats his guests well that keeps them for a longer amount of time. But what Peter does here, and what we should pay attention to, is that he misses the point of the transfiguration. Caught up in the excitement of the moment, Peter doesn't see the bigger picture. Jesus isn't having a casual chat with Moses and Elijah. This isn't coffee hour. This isn't the time or place to sit down for an afternoon tea and scones. These two Old Testament heroes have something incredibly in common with the imminent fate that Jesus faces. Both of them have suffered greatly for their faithfulness to God. In this moment, they are ministering to Jesus. As Jesus begins to set his face towards Calvary, as Jesus, in this pivotal scene, turns his face towards Jerusalem and to his death. Jesus cannot stay on top of this mountain if he is to fulfill the will of the Father for his life. And so God the Father chimes in on this conversation to declare to the disciples that which they ought to do, to listen to Jesus, and to obey what he commands. And Jesus has already told Peter, James, and John what this looks like. If we go back to chapter 8 near the end, Jesus tells them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. To go down the mountain with Jesus is to live a cruciform, a cross-shaped life. It means to live the kind of life that's willing even to die for Jesus and his good news. If we are to listen to Jesus, if we are to follow him, we can be certain that what lies ahead is a life that demands sacrifice. It demands that we die to ourselves. It demands that we deny our own plans for our life for the will of the Father. Likewise, we cannot build tents where Jesus is already on the move. If Jesus is already down the mountain, we cannot stay where we are comfortable. The cruciform life is a life that calls us to go out into a lost, broken, and even sometimes a hostile world. It's true, and it's possible, that you and I will have our fair share of mountaintop moments with the Lord. We will have those times where we feel so safe and so intimately close with God and so filled with His presence and so far away from persecution. But we, like the disciples, like Jesus, we cannot stay on top of the mountain. Our mission cannot remain within these four walls of this church. Like Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and the disciples after him, God has work for us to do at the bottom of the mountain. God has work for us to do out there. As Jesus leads his disciples down the mountain path, he strictly tells them to tell no one what they have seen, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, all throughout the Gospel, this is not an uncanny saying of Jesus. There are several times, about eight or nine in Mark, where Jesus says, okay, you figure this out, don't tell anyone about it. But here, at his transfiguration, is the one time in the Gospel where he gives that statement uh, an expiration date. For the first time, he says, you can say it. Once Jesus rises from the dead, the disciples are free, and commanded even, to spread the news of his transfiguration, to spread the gospel news of who Jesus really is and what he's done. So why the wait? Why does it have to come after Jesus' death and resurrection? Jesus is making it clear that the disciples, who have seen so much, are still, like Peter, not getting the full picture. They haven't seen it all yet. It's only when they become full witnesses of the gospel that they can then understand who Jesus is enough to tell others about him. It's the same for us today. There's no right way to understand who Jesus is until one has seen him suffer, die, and rise again. In short, for us, it means that we have to be so convicted of the whole gospel truth that we have basically become witnesses of the same. The Descent from the Mountaintop is a reflection of the gospel journey passing from Epiphany into Lent. The revelation of Christ is done, now it is time to go to the cross. Jesus has revealed himself and there is only one thing left to do, and it's waiting for him in Jerusalem. As we enter into this next season in the life of the Church, we walk on the path with Christ towards the cross of his crucifixion. In the coming weeks as Jesus marches towards the Father's will for his life in our lectionary, the season of Lent is like an invitation to us to reflect on ourselves. And to ask ourselves the hard question, are we fulfilling the Father's will for our life? Wherever we see that we have strayed, whether in holiness or obedience, Lent is giving us a time to practice repentance. Lent is the time in the Christian year to re-surrender ourselves to God. It's the time to take up disciplines in good faith, to practice ways of denying ourselves to make room for what God has in our life. With our own death and our own future resurrection in view, we can ask ourselves where we are proclaiming the glory of God from our own mountaintop moments in our lives. To venture down the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus is not necessarily to leave the good behind, but to embrace all that the Lord has for us as we seek to follow him as his disciples, bearing our cross in our lives. And we know that whatever the Lord has for us, it's good for all things that come from him are good. Let us go down the mountain today in the power of the Holy Spirit to be sacrificial servants in the world for the grace and the glory of God. Amen.